Welcome to Play for Keeps, a presentation of Ashland New Plays Festival. This play is the property of the playwright, who reserves all rights to its use. This recording is the property of Ashland New Plays Festival, Inc., which reserves all rights to its use. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Donna Orbits the Moon, a play by Ian August. Cast of Characters Donna, female, late 50s, wife, mother, homemaker, occasional environmentalist, and baking aficionado. Voice, male, disembodied voice off stage. Place in and around the Minnesota suburb. Time, 2010. Synopsis. Something is not quite right with Donna. She's a loving mother, a devoted wife, and a minor celebrity to all the bake sale planners in town, but something is making her spacey, and she's not sure what it is. Therapy is out of the question, and church isn't a place to share one's distress. Donna will need to pass through space and through time, all the while listening to an unlikely voice, and try to break free from her gravitational pull to learn just how she can land. Section 1. Countdown I slapped a woman's hand. I know, I know. It was a few weeks ago in the Rainbow Foods, I had been on my feet all day. There was a bake sale at the elementary school, and I have trouble getting away from those. I make a gooseberry blondie that was runner-up in a competition near Maple Grove a few years ago, and ever since, I became a minor celebrity to all the bake sale planners in town. In the last two months alone, I made a tray for the Shriners, a tray for the Catholics, the Girl Scouts, the Episcopalians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the State Penitentiary. I didn't even know the penitentiary had bake sales. I'm not even certain what it was benefiting, although there's really no reason that just because you're a criminal you can't enjoy a gooseberry blondie. So aside from the elementary school, I had done the dry cleaning, the post office, reorganized some old boxes in the attic, gotten my annual eye exam. Let's face it, I was just bushed. And there I was in the baking aisle of the Rainbow Foods, and I'm staring at the wall of all-purpose flour, and I reach out for a bag, and another hand, a hand that was not my hand, was reaching for the same bag. And rather than turning to the person who owned the hand, rather than stating politely, excuse me, Rather than apologizing and stepping away, I slapped her, hard. There was an audible smacking sound, like the crack of a tiny whip. I know, I was stunned. I turned to the woman. It was an older woman in her mid-sixties, and I could tell she was stunned. And then I grabbed my purse and I ran out. I can't really explain it beyond that. So now I shop at the Kowalskis, which is much further away, and I don't care for their produce, but I think I deserve the drive. That's not exactly all. 
You know, Gil has been working very hard lately. Most weeknights he gets home after 11 or so, and I'm usually in bed by 9, 9.30. And he recently started working weekends, too, so I spend more and more time by myself. I've taken up macrame, which is healthy, and certainly there's always a tray of blondies that can go in the oven. But it gets a little lonely, you know? So Gil tells me that he understands, and he knows, and I know he knows, and I tell him I know he knows. And we make plans for a special dinner on a Sunday evening, just like when Charlie and Terry still lived at home. Gil was coming home at 5. We would eat at 5.30 and watch 60 Minutes at 7. A lovely Sunday. I roasted potatoes, green beans with almonds. I stood out in the backyard and grilled steaks, ribeyes. four ninety-nine a pound, which is a bit pricey, but that's Kowalski's. Gil wasn't home by five. He wasn't home by six. And at seven, when 60 Minutes came on, it was a repeat, so I turned the television off. I made a plate for Gil, blew out the candles and put the rest of the food in the fridge, but as I was putting Gil's plate in the microwave, I guess my hand wasn't level and his steak slipped off and landed on the floor. I bent down to pick it up. God, this is so embarrassing. I felt my hand close around the meat, you know. It was still a bit warm. And I don't know why, but I just started rubbing it against the floor like it was a sponge and I was scrubbing. Tiny circles, tiny, tiny circles, without even thinking. By the baker's rack, behind the oven, under the fridge. And then I put it back on his plate, put the plate in the microwave. I wrote Gil a note that said, Supper's in the microwave, see you in the morning, and went to bed. I know what the next question is, but I don't know the answer. I didn't ask, and he didn't say. In the morning, I got up and made him coffee and a sandwich, and he kissed me on the cheek and flew out the door. I pulled out the bucket and the mop and cleaned the kitchen. And that was the end of that. But that wasn't the end of that. Cheryl and I were driving to a craft show in Duluth, you remember Cheryl, my friend who got divorced last year and then married her husband's mechanic? Well, Cheryl and I have been going to this craft show in Duluth every year for almost a decade, you know? We love little knickknacks. I love to get those little wooden cutouts that are shaped like flat Christmas ornaments and then paint them with Christmassy colors and tie little strings around them and use them as real Christmas ornaments. Well... We were driving up Highway 35 toward Moose Lake, and Cheryl is telling me all about Sven, that's the mechanic, when I realized we were a bit low on gas. I put on my blinker to get into the exit lane, and that's when the teenager with the black hair and the sports car cut me off. According to Cheryl, and I have to take her word for it because my memory of these events are very fuzzy, I had a bit of a moment in the car. I may have used a series of obscenities unfit for mixed company. 
and I also may have chased after his sports car in my minivan with my arm out the window in a rather unladylike gesture. What I can remember is sitting on the shoulder of the highway with my hands sore from gripping the steering wheel and Cheryl shouting into her cell phone to Sven to come and pick us up. Cheryl told me later that I might have caught the kid in the sports car if we hadn't run out of gas first. And that's the moment I realized that I might, in fact, have a little problem with my anger. The carpet isn't clean. The carpet isn't clean. I stood there with the vacuum in one hand and a can of Fresca in the other, repeating that over and over in my head as I tried in vain to clean the carpet. My daughter, Terry, is on the sofa reading a softball magazine she brought from her apartment, and I can see there's a crumb of something, pie, crust, or cracker, I'm not sure, stuck in two of the fibers of the carpet. I run the vacuum over it, but it doesn't pick up. So I repeat the motion, slower this time, as if to say, it's time to go, little crumb. But the crumb doesn't move. So I placed the head of the vacuum right on top of the spot, and I let it sit there. And when I pull back the vacuum, what do I see? That gosh darn little crumb staring back at me with its smug little crumb expression. I bent down, and with my fingers like this, I picked up the crumb. It came away as though it was waiting for my touch, easy and free. I looked at the crumb, and I looked at Terry sitting on the sofa, and I looked at the vacuum, still noisily grinding into my perpetually unclean carpet. And I picked up the vacuum, and I threw it against the wall. Terry jumped up, and I must have looked terrible, because she sat me in the easy chair and ran to get me a glass of water. I told her about the woman in the supermarket, and I told her about running out of gas on I-35, I did not tell her about cleaning the floor of the kitchen with her father's supper. I'm not sure what she would have thought about that. Terry suggested that I see a therapist. I told her that was a terrible idea. She said that she had seen three therapists since she graduated. One when she broke up with Richard. One when she broke up with Joseph. And one when she broke up with Maria. I told her that therapy is not for everyone. I also told her that if I went to see a therapist, I would feel like a failure, like I was broken. After all, my mother raised six children with an alcoholic husband, and she never saw a therapist. Terry got very angry with me. Do I think that she's a failure? Do I think that she's broken? I thought about what the best answer would be to those questions, but at that same moment, the glass of water I had been holding shattered in my hand and shards flew everywhere. Terry screamed. I screamed. Terry accused me of trying to kill her and ran out the door. I gingerly walked across the room, lifted up the vacuum, turned it on and tried to suck up the glass that had found its way into the carpet. A cut on my finger was bleeding down the handle. And in the back of my mind, I heard the echo of a faint whisper. The carpet isn't clean. The carpet isn't clean. 
I put on my church suit. It's navy blue with a light blue pinstripe, a jacket and skirt with a yellow blouse and scarf. It's been known as my church suit since Charlie was four or so. He had great difficulty at that age to pronounce his R's in many words, and the word church was the most notorious of those. Gil and Terry and I always found this very amusing, and Charlie picked up on that, as four-year-olds will do. For months, he would intentionally try to inject the word church into conversation so we could all giggle at his pronunciation, church. Mommy, when are we going to church? Does the baby Jesus live in church? Do Aunt Vera and Uncle Joe go to church? No, Charlie dear, Aunt Vera and Uncle Joe go to something called an ashram, where they eat toxic mushrooms and fornicate with their neighbors. That's true, but I never said that. Please don't think I said that. I said, yes, they do go to church. Every Sunday morning, just like us. This satisfied that glint of mischief in his eye, and he retreated into the daily routine of torturing his big sister until he could think of a way to use the word church again. In the minivan on the way to St. James, Gill smoked a cigarette with his arm half out the window, and the chill that swept through the minivan made my shoulders raise up. This was not easy, given the snugness of the church suit jacket. Gill didn't turn to me, but he said, Is there something on your mind? No, I said, as indeed there wasn't. I spoke to Terry, he said. I didn't say anything back. There wasn't much to say. She thinks you're not yourself lately, he said. What gave her that impression? I asked. You tried to kill her with a vacuum cleaner, he said. Maybe she was dirty, I said. Gil touched my thigh. There was concern behind his gray eyes, and he spoke softly. When something bothers me, he said, it helps for me to come here and listen. I was surprised by this. You come here? Alone? Gil squeezed my thigh with his strong hand and smiled. Sometimes listening is the only thing that lets us feel calm again. Listening to what, I thought. But church isn't the place to discuss one's distress. So I didn't say anything, and we stepped out of the car. St. James is not glamorous like some churches. It has the charm and humility of an elementary school. When Terry and Charlie used to come here, I remember there were more drawings on the walls, but Pastor Olson demanded cutbacks due to the economy, so I guess paper and glue had to go. The greeter greeted us, the coat-taker took our coats, and the usher ushed us to our seats, where we were immediately set upon by Merrill Peterson. She was squeezed into a white dress with red polka dots that was quite a bit too small, and she had a little pillbox hat to match— perched upon a tumbleweed of curly blonde hair. Oh, yeah, she said before I even sat down. Those gooseberry blondies you donated to the Scouts Bake Sale were everyone's favorite. Oh, thank you, I said. She went on. I'm trying not to eat sweets, but I had to sample a few. You wouldn't mind passing along the recipe, would you? 
I did mind. I don't like being possessive, but I'm very proud of that recipe, and I don't really give it out. But church isn't the place to discuss my fragile self-esteem, so instead I said, Give me a call sometime this week and we'll talk. Meryl shifted, and her great bulk shoved me into Gil's arm like a nudge from a polka-dotted Holstein. Maybe you could write it down for me today, she said. I smiled. I'm sorry, Meryl. I don't have a pen handy. You have my number, though. Meryl took the hint, but she wasn't pleased. Her turned-up nose let out a snort, and she leaned over to Borg and muttered, Well, you should try to keep it consistent. This last tray was a little on the dry side. Something red flashed behind my eyes, and then I realized Gil was prying the Bible from my hand. I looked over at him, and his expression spoke volumes. I was about to unconsciously use the holy book to bludgeon Merrill Peterson. Gil was surprised, but church isn't the place to discuss the potential homicide of other churchgoers, so I didn't address the situation directly, and thankfully Merrill hadn't noticed. Instead, Gil leaned toward me and whispered, Donna, try your best to listen. I nodded. I would. I promised. And as Pastor Olson began his sermon, I listened. I listened hard. It was about sharing the word of Jesus with your neighbor, which was something I was very interested in. But the strange thing was, after a few moments, I was listening so well that I couldn't hear anything he was saying. His words were moving past me, around me, winding through my South Sea pearls and wrapping around Merrill's polka-dot pillbox hat. It ribboned through Gil's arm, snaked around my stockinged ankle, and I began to hear the movement, the wind behind the movement, until the words were totally drowned out by the sound, that rush of wind, like the roar of a jet engine or of a rocket blasting off. My eyes blinked, and my sight was filled with flashes of color, yellow, red, green, white. The room began to spin, the pastor falling. The people in front of me were now above me, behind me, below me. And then Gil had his hand on my arm. I was standing in the middle of the congregation. Pastor Olson had stopped speaking. Everyone was staring at me, mouths open. I tried to speak, but nothing came out. I was dry. I was empty. Donna, Gil said quietly. I pushed past Gil and ran up the aisle into the hall. I grabbed my coat from its wooden peg and followed the gray carpet through the lobby until I was outside in the parking lot. With a giant moan, I proceeded to vomit violently down the front of my beautiful pinstripe church suit. And with the world still spinning, I wound my way to the minivan, where I fell forward onto the cold, hard asphalt, and then everything went dark. It was me sitting in the blue plaid easy chair in the living room. I was looking out from the chair, but I was seeing myself in it as well, you know, the way dreams can do. I was doing some macrame with my good yarn, the gray yarn with the silver tinsel running through it, and I was weaving something. 
There was a smile on my face, very broad but genuine. I was happy. There was a parade of people marching through the living room, and I smiled as each one passed. Gil, Cheryl, Terry, my sister Vera, Pastor Olson, Melanie Durhammer from my high school class who used to be my gymnastics partner. One by one, they marched past me and out the front door, and Melanie did a cartwheel as she left. I noticed then that my macrame was gone, replaced by a glass of water. I looked down into the water and could see my reflection staring back at me. I was still smiling, just as broadly, but something in my eyes made it seem as though I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. I felt a rumble beneath my chair and looked around the room. Nothing happened. And then the rumble came back, and the room began to shake, lightly at first, and then more aggressively. The photograph of my mother rattled against the wall. The wooden Christmas ornaments I had placed on the mantel began to drop, one by one, to the floor. And then, all of a sudden, crack! The water glass cracked, the house cracked, everything at once with one big crack! I threw the glass to the floor as the walls of my home seemed to break apart, pieces of the ceiling crumbling onto the carpet, clouds of dust enveloping my furniture. I caught my reflection in a picture frame before it clattered to the floor. Why was I still smiling? I was terrified. I could feel my terror. I could see it in my own eyes, but I was still smiling. My fingers began to claw my face, trying to force the corners of my mouth into retreat. And I could see my world collapsing around my body as my nails dug deeper and deeper into my cheeks. And then the entire house disintegrated around me. I was left in nothingness, in emptiness, black with tiny specks of white that lived off in the distance, so far away I could not touch them. And then I realized those specks of white were stars. I was in outer space. And then a hand in a plastic glove stretched toward me, and I reached for it, and we touched. And then I woke up. My eyes peered up into a dark room. I was in a strange bed, and when I craned my head to the right, I could see Terry sitting in a metal folding chair, her eyes fluttering as she struggled to stay awake. I blinked and whispered, Terry, honey. She sat up straight. I said, You should go home and go to bed, sweetie. She smiled, reached out, and took my hand in hers. Do you feel okay? she asked. I shrugged. I noticed it was easier as I was no longer in my church suit. I asked if we were in the hospital, but she didn't have to answer. The scent of cleaning solution suddenly filled my nostrils. I recognized it right away. I said, I had a moment at church, right? Terry nodded and told me that the doctor said it was nothing serious. He said it was vertigo and that it was probably stress-induced, and that he had a pill I could take. That sounded ridiculous to me. How can you have vertigo if you're barely five feet tall?
Dad was so worried, Terry said. He's been here the whole time, but I made him go to the cafeteria to get a cup of coffee. I told her she was a good girl and asked her to go and fetch her father. She kissed my hand before she left and shut the door. I was alone. Alone. And now that I was awake, I couldn't help feeling really angry. Angry that I put my Gill and my Terry through this aggravation. Angry at the doctors who gave me such a silly diagnosis. Angry at Meryl Peterson and her thoughtless request for my gooseberry blondie recipe. And then I thought of Gill and how sweet he was in the car. And his advice, listen. Just listen. So I shut my eyes and blocked out the hospital smells and sounds. And I took a deep breath and I listened. Hello, Donna. I opened my eyes, looked around the room, but there was no one there. So I closed them again. I lay there and took a deep breath. Hello, Donna. This time I was certain I heard it, a man's voice. Who is it? I asked. Who's there? But there was no one in the room. I could see every corner. The door to the little bathroom was still ajar. And though the lights were dim, I could say without a shadow of a doubt that there was absolutely no one in that... Don't be frightened, Donna. But I was frightened. I was terrified. I drew my hands to my face just to see if I was smiling, still dreaming. I wasn't. I managed to ask, Who... who are you? Are you God? No, Donna. I got nervous. Are you the devil? No, Donna. Wait, are you some celebrity? Is this one of those television shows? No, Donna. I was getting frustrated. Well, who are you then? Some ghost or something? Because I have had a pretty rough Sunday, Mr. Voice, and I am in no mood. Now either tell me who the heck you are or get out of here for good. There was a pause. And then the voice said the strangest words I have ever heard in my life. He said, My name. He said, My name is Buzz Aldrin. I was the second man to walk on the moon. And I'm here to help you, Donna. I'm here to help you land. And that's when Terry and Gill stepped right back into the room where my startled expression was completely ignored in the wake of my husband's utter relief. Section 2. Liftoff. The voice often came at night. Hello, Donna. Ever since I stopped taking the sleeping pills, it just came to me. Sometimes I would be alone. Sometimes Gil would be asleep next to me. My name is Buzz Aldrin. Once or twice it would come in the morning, as I sat in the kitchen having a cup of tea. Are you going to speak to me, Donna? I didn't reply. I couldn't see the point in it. What was I supposed to discuss with the Buzz Aldrin in my mind? If I ignored it, eventually it would stop. Eventually it would go away. I am not going to go away, Donna. 
I didn't even know anything about Buzz Aldrin. Was he still alive? I made Cheryl come with me to the public library on Wednesday morning. She protested, but eventually agreed. Oh, geez, I can't stand that place, she said after applying a third layer of lipstick. Books make me feel all sort of stupid. I told her that was ridiculous, though I could understand her point. I never went to college. My parents couldn't afford to send both Vera and me, and Vera was the smart one. I never had the interest. From the passenger side of the minivan, Cheryl checked her eye makeup and took out a long black pencil. Why are we even going? she asked, and I told her I wanted to look something up. Buzz Aldrin, I said. From the Disney movie? she said. I think you may have hit your head a little harder than we thought, sweetie. I explained to her what I knew of Mr. Aldrin. He was the second man on the moon after Neil Armstrong. You really do learn something new every day, she muttered. She used her tongue to wipe the lipstick from her front teeth. But if you need me to drive, honey, you just pull over. I don't have my license back yet, but I can fake it as good as any. When we pulled into the parking lot of the library, both of us got quiet. We stepped through the sliding glass doors, which opened with a whoosh, and our mouths got dry. Large chestnut cases lined the walls from floor to ceiling, with thousands of books dotted with thousands of white labels. Cheryl's eyes went wide. Where do we even start? As if on cue, a frail young man approached us. He wore thick glasses and a sweater vest. He spoke with a light lisp. His name tag read Jean, and he asked if we needed any help. Cheryl laughed. From you? I stepped in front of her. Um, hi, yes. Do you have any books on Buzz Aldrin? The astronaut? He asked in a low whisper. No, the cartoon character, Cheryl said at full voice. Someone shushed her from the front desk. Jean led us to a computer typed in something with super speed. He whispered again, It looks like we have two biographies and a few volumes on the history of space travel. Do you have a preference? Cheryl leaned into him, a little too close. We prefer to be at the hair salon. Go get us the books, sweetie. Jean swallowed hard and vanished into the rows of shelves. I nudged Cheryl and told her not to frighten him. Cheryl smirked. Maybe if he put down a book and picked up a girl, he wouldn't whisper so much. Someone shushed her from the stacks. Jean came back with four or five thick books and a couple of larger, thinner ones. I found a few from the children's room, he said. I wasn't sure what you needed them for. Cheryl began to lace into him. Do we look like children to you? but one of the children's books he held up caught my eye. It had an illustrated picture of an astronaut floating in the middle of space. A speckle of white stars dotted the background, and the gloved hand was outstretched, reaching. That one. I want that one, I said. Cheryl and Jean both turned to me, surprised. We'll go check that out for you, Jean said.
Jean took my library card and walked me to the front desk. You'll need to bring it back in two weeks. Thank you, I said. And then he paused and his eyes became concerned. I'm sorry, ma'am. I just wanted to ask. Are you Charlie's mom? I admit I was taken aback. Yes, I said. We went to junior high school together. Gene pushed his glasses up onto the bridge of his nose. I heard he got back from his tour last year. I don't think he'll remember me, but if you feel like it, tell him Gene from seventh grade English says hi. He was always very nice to me. Gene smiled, and I felt my heart twinge a little. I will, I said. Cheryl grabbed the book and my arm and began leading me to the door. You know what, sweetie? We're going to go get new sweaters. And when you get hungry, I'm going to take you to Friday's and buy whatever appetizer you want, so long as it's the jalapeno poppers. I mean, geez, I'd just die for those jalapeno poppers. And without another word from me, the sliding glass doors closed behind us with a whoosh. Okay, so, Charlie. I should talk about Charlie. Charlie is like every other child you've ever known. Stubborn, at times thoughtless, self-centered, and self-righteous. Charlie growing up did exactly what every teenage boy did. All he cared about was girls, cars, money, never doing his homework, never doing his hair. Like every other kid, he screamed at his father. Oh, he was 16, and we caught him with a cigarette in the backyard, nearly set Mr. Wilbur's screen porch on fire. Gil was furious. We both were. Charlie. If you want to know about Charlie, here's one for the books. When Charlie was 14, he decided to play football. His friend, Johnny so-and-so, had just made the team, and Charlie thought that was, you know, awesome. He begged to go to tryouts. Gil said yes, so I said yes, but in my mind I'm screaming, football! I mean, he was skinny, my Charlie. Terry could stand up to knife-wielding ninjas and she'd be fine, but Charlie, a strong breeze could land him in a ditch with a concussion. Gil drove him to tryouts. They came home, and Charlie was elated. I was a wreck. Just picturing my baby boy with, gosh, you name it, black eyes, leg in a cast, internal bleeding, every night a different injury nightmare. Gil couldn't understand why he'd find me crying in my tuna fish. I couldn't find the words to say without sounding like a lunatic. And, of course, Charlie made the team. I worked out a deal with Marjorie Kipling. Her son, Milo, had also made the team, and so I offered to drive there, and she would bring them home. I'd be fibbing if I told you I wasn't nervous. It was the same kind of anxiety I felt when I left him at kindergarten. When I got home, I planted myself in the blue plaid easy chair and waited for him to get back, my eyes fixed on the door a bag of cotton balls in one hand, a bottle of iodine in the other. 
Three hours later, the phone rang. Terrified, I ran into the kitchen, grabbing the receiver. And almost as soon as I said hello, I heard the front door open, Charlie's feet as they scaled the steps two at a time in the door of his room, slamming shut. The coach's voice wished me a good evening. How are you? I asked, but I didn't care. Every instinct told me to drop the receiver and race up those stairs with my iodine and my cotton balls. He cleared his throat. Apparently, there had been an incident. There had been a fight. I was astonished. A fight? My Charlie had gotten into a fight? With one of the other boys? The coach elaborated. Not one of the other boys. Three of the other boys. Charlie had beaten up three of the other boys on the team. Left Billy something or other with a black eye. Gave Randall, what's his name, a bloody nose. Made Johnny so-and-so eat a fistful of grass. I was horrified. I told him I was horrified. I apologized and assured him that Charlie would apologize as well to the whole team, to the league if necessary. He cleared his throat again. Charlie was no longer on the team, was not welcome to the games, and would have to take his violent streak elsewhere. And then he hung up. I couldn't exactly tell what I was feeling when that phone clicked. I can't tell you that there wasn't a sort of relief that no physical harm had come to my son. But once I was able to think about it, really think clearly about what he said, I was mortified. My son was a bully? My son beat up three other boys at once? How could I face the other parents? How could I go to back-to-school night or the supermarket or to church? I marched up those steps and pounded on his door with my fist. I yelled through the wood that his father would have to handle this, that there would have to be punishment for his actions. I told him I didn't even care why it happened. It was the wrong thing to do, and he knew it was the wrong thing to do. I told him I was very disappointed in him, and then I repeated it for emphasis. Very disappointed. Charlie didn't say anything back through the door, so I gave it one more kick with my foot before retreating back down the steps. The phone rang again. It was Marjorie Kipling. Instinctively, I began to apologize for Charlie's behavior. There's no need to apologize, Marjorie said. I just wanted to call and tell you what happened. I told her I spoke to the coach, but she cut me off. What really happened, she said. She explained. The boys on the team had been pretty rough on her Milo. That Johnny so-and-so thought it would be funny to push Milo to the ground and play keep-away with his glasses. Someone kicked Milo in the stomach. Another boy threw dirt in his hair. And when Charlie saw what was going on, well, we know what happened next. I'm not saying what he did was right, Marjorie said. But there's a little boy in my house who thinks your Charlie is quite the hero. If you want to know about Charlie, that pretty much says it right there, you know. That's him. He's still like that. You need to go up before you can land.
Oh, he said that for three days straight, and I had no idea what it meant. Meanwhile, it was two and a half weeks since my episode at church, and I was feeling better and better every day. My energy had come back. My house was spotless again. I kept the library book in the nightstand. As drawn to it as I had been, I couldn't quite bring myself to open it. But that didn't seem to matter much to Mr. Aldrin in my head. Every night before bed and every morning when I woke up, it was all... Donna, you need to go up before you can land. I heard it waiting for my hair appointment. You need to go up before you can land. I heard it standing on line at the Walmart. You need to go up before you can land. Every time my mind was idle, it came back. So I did everything to keep the voice out. A lot of reading. Working hard on my macrame. Baking cookies, cakes, blondies, you name it. In fact, the baking brought me back to church. And church brought me to... I'll tell you. Because pride is a sin. I got a call from Merrill Peterson. I know, I know, but it was very civil. Gracious, even. Would I like to do a charitable act, Merrill wanted to know. There was a children's hospital in Minnetonka she used to work for, and one of the kitchen staff was an award-winning baker and used to bake fresh cookies for the children every Wednesday. The woman was on maternity leave. Would I be willing to donate some of my cookies to the hospital? For the children, Merrill said. Absolutely, I told her. It would be a pleasure to get out of the house. Merrill snorted through the phone. She'd be by at 10.30 the next morning, and we would leave together. I hung up, wondering if I should have just asked to go by myself but I knew I needed to get past whatever had been bothering me, and this little road trip with Merrill might do the trick. In preparation, I made two dozen gingerbread men, three dozen peanut butter kisses, banana bread, a few pies, a triple chocolate layer cake, and, of course, a tray of gooseberry blondies. Merrill arrived ten minutes late in a faux fox fur coat and boots and hat to match, she looked like a day-glow orange yeti. You look lovely, I said. Yeah, Donna, she muttered. You too. But her eyes went wild at the neatly stacked mountain of sweets. Oh, gosh, she said. We loaded up the minivan and set off for Minnetonka. We settled in pretty quickly, me perched behind the wheel, Merrill pressing buttons on the radio until she found a station she could tolerate. So, Donna, she said, how are you feeling? You're looking much better than I thought you would. I told her I was fine and that I had directions to the hospital that Gil had printed out the night before. She seemed surprised by this and unfolded several sheets of lined paper, all marked with chicken-scratch pen marks. Nonsense, she said. Let me be the navigator and you the driver. I've been to this hospital a hundred times before. I consented, and our journey continued in relative silence, the twang of country music occasionally broken by static. We were on Route 94 for several minutes when Merrill advised me to take the next exit. Up here? I asked, 
and she nodded, her chins dancing like ripples on a pond. I know how to go. Make this turn and then go straight. Meryl stretched in her fox fur, and I heard a little tear, as though a seam had quietly burst. All right, I said. I made the turn and went straight, and as we moved on, we drove away from the areas familiar to me. Meryl would say left, and I would go left. She would say right, and I would go right. Once or twice she would have me turn around, and before we knew it, 11 a.m. turned into 12 p.m., and that turned into 2 p.m., and that turned into 4 p.m. My directions were useless at this point, and Merrill, who was becoming increasingly agitated, couldn't make heads or tails of her pieces of lined paper. It's the smell of all those sweets, she muttered. Can't think straight worth a darn. I offered her a cookie, and although she said she shouldn't, she shoved a gingerbread man in her mouth. Let's pull over, I said. I'll call Gil and have him find the nearest highway. No, Merrill insisted, licking her fingers. I can get us there. I know the way. I think the way you knew may have changed a bit, I said delicately. Merrill snorted again. She reached for another cookie, her giant paw scraping nails against the little gingerbread body before her fingers closed around it. This is coming from the woman who ran out of gas on I-35 a couple months ago? Really, Donna? I could feel, I could feel something, but I pushed it away. And inside my head, I could hear, Donna, you need to go up. Merrill continued, Frankly, I'm surprised we made it here in one piece. The way you looked that day at church? Like you had lost your little mind. I could feel something red, but I held it back. It's just that voice. Donna, you need to go up. I knew I shouldn't have asked you to do this, she said through mouthfuls of gingerbread limbs. I knew something was going to go wrong. I just didn't know what. What with all the mental anguish you've been under. I should have listened to my inner voice. Donna. When it told me to just leave Donna and her mixed-up brain alone. Donna. It said... You need to go up before you come down. It said... Donna. Needs butter, she said. And that's when it happened. That's when the moment occurred. The police report stated that the minivan was discovered on County Road 3 in Scandia with the front fender wrapped around a red maple. Smoke was billowing from beneath the hood. The headlights were shattered and the passenger side front tire was deflated. A large blonde in a fox suit was asleep in the back seat, covered head to toe in assorted baked goods. Buttercream frosting was smeared across her face and her forehead was stained with what was later discovered to be cherry pulp. The driver of the vehicle, a middle-aged woman, was found sitting barefoot in the snow beneath the very same tree, chewing on something described as a peanut butter kiss. Neither woman appeared to be injured, although the driver complained to the officer that she may have misplaced her sneakers. A local police officer brought me home. His brother belonged to our church. He was very kind. Gil opened the front door. 
It was late, almost ten. I said nothing. The officer and Gill had a quiet conversation. I went up to the bedroom. Donna? That's enough. I don't want to hear it. Donna, you need to go up. I don't think that's very fair, do you? Donna, you need to go. Will you shut up? Shut up for a gosh darn minute and let me have some peace. Gil was standing in the doorway of the bedroom. Who are you talking to? he asked. I had no words. He took a step toward me. Donna, he said. I don't want to talk right now, I said. I don't want to talk about anything. Gil took another step and I screamed at him. I don't want to talk right now, I said. I don't want to talk about anything. Gil shut the door as he left the room. Section 3. Orbit I was in the dining room, polishing a silver caddy spoon that I had bought at a rummage sale back in the 70s. It has a picture of a horse on the handle, and the bell of the spoon is scalloped like a clam. Or a scallop. I don't actually know what a scallop shell looks like, but I suppose since I know what the word scalloped means, I can venture a guess. Gill came into the dining room and stood at the far end of the table. His hand rested on the back of the chair, and he looked at me with that concerned look that seemed more and more common these days. He and I had barely exchanged words over the last few, as I was still struggling with Buzz Aldrin and trying not to think about my moment with the minivan, the sweets, and the screaming. In fact, that day, as I looked up at Gill in his blue crew-neck sweater, I could hear the voice faintly in my head. Donna. But I think even Buzz knew not to get too close to the surface. Donna, Gill said slowly. I said good morning and offered to get him tea and toast. It was 2.30 in the afternoon, so he declined. He said, Donna, I think there's something we need to discuss. Oh, I said. I think, he said, I think you need to go to the hospital. I smiled and told Gil I was feeling fine and asked what he would like for supper. I told him I had a beautiful pork roast in the fridge and that I could do a little mustard and rosemary marinade if he would like. Gil looked at me like I had three heads. If you're not going to take this seriously, he said, then I don't know what to do. Pork roast it is, I said, and Gil walked away. The next day, Terry and her roommate Linda drove me to the Mall of America. I like the Mall of America. I also like Linda. Linda likes crocheting. That's a cousin of macrame. And we often discussed recipes and which household cleaners were environmentally safe. However, Linda was in the back seat and was strangely quiet, staring out the window as we drove on to 94, heading west. I told the girls how it had been a long time since I had gone to the Mall of America. It had gotten so touristy. A lot of the fun had been taken out. But I was excited because I very much wanted to get new sneakers, and the shoe stores in town didn't have anything I liked. 
Terry turned to me and said, I just need to make a quick stop first. I said, okay. Linda said, okay. The voice said, Donna, I'm still here. I'm waiting for you. That had surprised me. It had been a couple of hours of relative silence in my brain, and I wasn't prepared for the interruption. Terry looked at me across the front seat. She knew something had happened. I told her I was thinking about what restaurant I wanted to eat in at the mall, although I always had a fondness for the Rainforest Cafe. All those tropical fish tanks and talking monkeys. I imagine that's what the real Amazon is like. When we pulled off the highway, I was prepared. When we stopped at a small brick building in Oakbury, I was intrigued. When we stepped inside and Terry approached the receptionist, I was confused. When she said that she was here for an appointment with a psychologist, I was concerned. But when she said that the appointment was for me, I felt my face go pale. Buzz Aldrin said, Donna, you need to go up before you can land. Fifteen minutes later, I was led into Dr. Hartso's office. He was a round man with a kind face. He wore suspenders, and although I usually took that as a positive, I was on my guard for obvious reasons. Dr. Hartso stood up when I entered and smiled. Donna, he said, it's nice to meet you. Donna, the voice said, it's nice to meet you. I sat down on his sofa, which I noticed was quite a bit springier than ours at home. I asked him where he purchased it, and he said he didn't know. Donna, he said, I just want to give you a place where you can speak freely. A place you can come to talk about anything that's troubling you. Yes, Donna, said the voice. What is troubling you? I told Dr. Hartso that I had nothing to say. There was nothing troubling me with the exception of my daughter's unwarranted need to bring me to see a therapist. He said, okay, okay, that's a start. Let's talk about Terry. Donna, said the voice. Let's talk about Terry. But I knew what Dr. Fancy Pants was up to. You know, I am feeling very tired right now. Oh, he said. Yes, I said. And I am not very interested in playing any reindeer games today. So you don't want to talk about Terry? He said. No, I don't, I said. What about your other child? Charlie, is it? Donna, it said. Charlie, is it? I don't need to tell you I was livid. I stood up. I hope they paid you for a full hour, I said. And without another word from me, I left. Blackness. I was floating in a sea of blackness, and the blackness, the universe, was so thick, it was like I was floating in a sea of motor oil, shiny, shimmering, moving like the waves of an ocean. And the reflections in the sheen of the motor oil were not reflections at all. They were stars. They were the shimmer of stars. And then they weren't stars at all. They were images. 
pictures, visions of people, things, places I had seen. I looked up and moving toward me, floating from a seemingly endless cord attached to his spacesuit, was Buzz Aldrin. I couldn't see his face through the darkness of his helmet, but I was certain it was him. I reached toward him, and he reached toward me, his plastic-gloved hands stretching toward my pale white skin, and when our fingers touched, there was a flash, and he was gone. What do you want from me? I said. It's in the book, he said. I could feel myself floating away from that spot. The images and pictures started getting smaller and smaller as I drifted back, like someone had gotten a hold of me and was pulling me away from him. What's in the book? I asked. Charlie's in the book, he said. I was moving faster now. The images, the stars, were blurring as they swept past me. But I called out, What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? I could see Earth behind me. I was coming closer and closer every moment, growing larger and larger, and the stars faded into straight white lines as I broke into the Earth's atmosphere with a loud crack. I plummeted fell through clouds, spiraling down into the atmosphere with my legs and arms flailing, and my face is burning from the wind, and I'm screaming into the roar. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? And as the ground nears, mountains and ocean rising up to meet me, I hear a voice. Donna, you need to go up before you can land. And the earth struck me, and I opened my eyes. It was very late and very dark. The digital clock on the wall cast a faint green glow across the bedspread, but I didn't look to see the time. Gil was sitting on the edge of the bed. He hadn't noticed me wake up. I could only see the silhouette of his back and the top of his head. His back was shaking. His hand went up to his face. He was crying. My gill was crying. I reached out with my hand, but I couldn't bring myself to touch him. So I drew back my hand and waited, waited until he crawled under the covers, waited until his sobbing ended, waited until his body rose and fell in the rhythm of a peaceful slumber before I closed my eyes and waited, like him, for sleep. The next morning, I awoke to find Gill's side of the bed empty. The sheets and the comforter had been neatly folded over to look as though he tried quietly to make the bed. I rolled myself into a sitting position and recalled what I had witnessed the night before. My heart ached from the freshness of the memory. I would have to find a way to make things right again. That would have to be my new purpose. My thoughts went to the dream, and I removed the book from the nightstand. There was the familiar picture on the cover, the man in the spacesuit reaching, just like he had in so many of my dreams. The book was a simple, hardbound picture book all about the Apollo 11 mission. I guess that's the one that Buzz Aldrin was on. I didn't remember the number of which Apollo it was. 
I flipped through the pages. Nothing about the book seemed to speak anything to me about Charlie. I guess sometimes a dream is just a dream after all. From behind me, Gil spoke. What's that? I shoved the book under a pillow and turned to him, embarrassed. Nothing, I said. Gil stood tall in the doorway, dressed in his work clothes, his navy suit and the lavender-striped tie that I got him for his last birthday. A suitcase dangled from his right hand. Where are you going? I asked. Work, he replied. Are you moving in? I asked. Gil set the suitcase down, but he didn't step toward me. I'm going to stay with Terry and Linda for a few days, he said. I need some time away. From me? I asked. I could feel tears coming to my eyes and tried to force them back. Donna, Gil said softly. I think you need to go to the hospital. We both know what this is about. This is not about Charlie, I said. Gil shook his head. I tried to understand. I tried to support you. I don't know what to do, he said. And then he said, and these words were the most painful words I have ever heard in my life. He said, I don't know who you are anymore. I grabbed the pillow and clutched it in my lap. Please, Gil, I said. Please. Gil's attention went to a point behind me. Where did you find that book? He said. He looked down at the children's book that had been hidden under the pillow. I didn't know we still had that book. We don't have this book, I told him. It's from the library. Gil shook his head. I bought that book for Charlie when he had to do his American Hero report in the fourth grade. His face began to tense. He was trying to prevent himself from getting emotional. When you're ready to deal with this, Donna, I'll come back. I couldn't bring myself to move as he picked up the suitcase, and I listened as my husband walked down the stairs and took his coat from the coat rack, and with a jingle of his keys, pulled the front door closed. Gil, I said. Gil, please. And then I heard the voice. Donna, you need to go up. You need to go up. You need... You need... You... And I... I don't know what happened next. I had a moment. I can only describe what occurred as a moment. And in that moment, somehow a mirror was broken. And in that moment, somehow a book was shredded. And in that moment, somehow holes were made in the walls. And in that moment, somehow... I had a gash on my forehead and lacerations up and down my arms and legs and blood slipped freely from my body down into the carpet. It was a moment, but it passed. 
and now I had another room to clean. We kept the really potent cleaners, the bleach and such, up in the attic, out of reach. It was something we had started when the children were small, to prevent them from accidentally drinking anything poisonous. I had just reorganized the attic a couple of months ago, so I knew exactly where we kept everything. I pulled the cord from the ceiling and walked up the attic steps. I clicked on the lights and grabbed the carpet cleaner and the bleach. I reached out my hand to the light switch. And that's when I saw it. The book. The same book. Sitting on top of a box of Charlie's old things. A little battered, a little worse for wear but the same picture of the same astronaut on the same book. I dropped the cleaning supplies and rushed over to it. On the inside cover, in red marker, to Charlie, my own American hero, Love Dad. And as I flipped the pages, a single piece of lined paper folded into fourths slid out onto the attic floor. I unfolded it and began to read... And in my mind, I heard Buzz Aldrin say, Donna, you need to go up before you can land. Section 4. Landing The steps of the hospital were pale and hard. The walls were white and without texture. The lights were bright and not flattering to the people who milled about the room. Then again, I'm sure I must have been a sight in my dark sunglasses and a nasty-looking cut on my forehead. I glanced back to the lobby door, to Cheryl and Sven, who sat on one of the waiting room chairs. Cheryl was perched on his lap, her cell phone flipped open and pressed to her ear. But she saw me and waved an encouraging wave. I turned back to the elevators. The doors opened and the sign read, Polytrauma. The receptionist at the front desk looked up at me and smiled. Her name was Alice, a pretty young black woman who once made me a cup of tea. She recognized me. It's nice to see you, she said. Let me show you where you need to go. I need to go up before I can land. I told her. Alice led me to a spacious hall with large windows on either side of the room. Several people sat around the room, an old man with his brother, a nurse with a young woman on crutches. Across the room, a lonely man sat in a wheelchair staring out into the sunlight. He wore a faded hospital gown, and his hair was buzzed close to his scalp. He was too thin, but his face, his face was strong and handsome. He looked, he looked like Gil. Alice bent down beside him and whispered in his ear. Charlie, she said, someone is here to see you. Someone very special. Charlie didn't respond. Alice turned to me and smiled. He's very excited, Donna. If you need me for anything, just come and find me. Thank you, I muttered, and Alice left. 
I pulled a folding chair from the corner beside the wheelchair. The sun that streamed through the window was warm on my face. I said hello to Charlie. He didn't respond. I told him I was sorry it had been so long since I had been to visit. He didn't respond. I told Charlie that I had found something of his and that I wanted to show it to him. I took out the folded piece of lined paper I had found inside the book and I unfolded it. I held it up for him to see. I actually have it with me now. Can I, can I read some of it? My American Hero by Charlie My American Hero is U.S. astronaut Buzz Aldrin. He was the second man to walk on the moon and was the pilot of the Apollo 11 space shuttle. He wears a suit and a helmet in space so his face doesn't blow up like in the movies. Someday I also want to go in space like Buzz Aldrin went to space. I want to leave the world behind and travel. I think that's travel. The penmanship isn't... Never mind. Travel to far away and unknown places. Sometimes when I am angry or alone, I want to go far away and I imagine that I am Buzz Aldrin in space. I asked Charlie if he remembered writing that. He didn't respond. I brought my hand up to the side of his head and traced the long scar that ran across his temple. I told him that I had one too now, that we matched. His scar. This was the only physical reminder of the roadside bomb that blew up last June. This was the only evidence of the blast and the shrapnel in the moment that my son had vanished. The rest of his team had died. Only Charlie was left alive, unable to speak, unable to hear, unable to think, but alive. And I had been so angry, so, so angry that he had been taken from me, taken from me, but still here. I don't get to mourn. I don't get to grieve. My son is still here, but he's not. And it made me, it makes me so angry. So I asked Charlie if he was angry too, if we could be angry together. And I asked him if he could forgive me for being so angry, and if I could forgive him for leaving me without ever saying goodbye or kissing me on the cheek or... I cried. I held my son. And I cried. And I felt a hand on my shoulder. And I looked up, and it was Gil. And he cried, and I cried. And we held our baby boy together. I'm sorry, I said. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure who it was for. If it was to Gil, if it was to Charlie, if it was to me. I just couldn't stop from saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And in the back of my mind, I heard a voice. Houston, 
The eagle has landed. And then everything inside went quiet, and I was left with only me, my husband, and my beautiful son, silent and handsome in his wheelchair by the window. Some nights I have a lovely dream. I'm floating, floating in the darkness of space, you know. And in the distance I can see an astronaut, a man in a spacesuit, and he's moving toward me, attached by a seemingly endless cord that trails off behind him. He approaches me, and his hand reaches out, and my hand reaches out, and our fingers touch. The astronaut reaches for his helmet, and with a pop and a hiss, it releases, and staring out at me from behind that heavy white suit is my son, my Charlie. He smiles at me, and his hair is long and in his face like it was when he was in high school, and I reach to run my hand through it. Charlie laughs at my touch, and he pulls away, floats away, laughing and waving and beautiful and whole. And I laugh, too, because I know that this is a dream, but it's just too wonderful for me to care. Charlie floats. I float. We laugh. And around us, the stars twinkle like the blinking lights on a Christmas tree. The End This has been a production of Play for Keeps. Thank you for joining us. 